Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, salam, and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm your host, Shahnaz Haqqani. Today, we are speaking with Maha Hilal on her book, Innocent Until Proven Muslim, Islamophobia, The War on Terror, and the Muslim Experience Since 9-11, published in 2022 with Broadleaf Books. Hilal holds a PhD in Justice, Law, and Society from American University, and she has received many awards, including the Department of State's Critical Language Scholarship, the Catherine Davis Fellowship for Peace, and a Reebok Human Rights Fellowship. In Innocent Until Proven Muslim, Hilal describes how narratives of 9-11 and the war on terror have been constructed over the last 20 years and the various ways in which they have justified state violence against Muslims. She offers answers to many questions, including and especially how the war on terror started, what its impact on American Muslims and Muslims abroad has been, and how to work to dismantle it. The book is written accessibly, making difficult concepts and themes very easy to follow and understand. It is easily assignable in undergraduate and graduate courses and makes for an essential read for policymakers and for anyone interested in the Muslim American experience post 9-11 and perhaps anyone who denies the existence of institutional Islamophobia and naively thinks that the U.S. is the beacon of light and justice in the world, because this book shows with ample evidence that it's not. In our conversation today, Hilal tells us the story of the origins of the book, what its contributions are, what makes it different from other books on Islamophobia, the roles that U.S. presidents since 9-11 have played in reinforcing and exacerbating Islamophobic rhetoric in the U.S. We also talk about the many U.S. policies, domestic as well as international, that legitimate the existence of Islamophobic state violence, the ways in which the FBI uses informants to entrap Muslims, the legal and narrative strategies that allow for the U.S. to commit extreme forms of torture against Muslims. We end with a discussion on internalized Islamophobia and, among other other things, its harmful impact on Muslim Americans. This here is my conversation with Maha Hilal. Salam Maha. Hi. Thank you so much for coming to talk with me about your brand new book. It's one of the most important books that I've personally read on Islamophobia and the the narrative, the 9-11 narrative, which is called Innocent Until Proven Muslim, Islamophobia, the War on Terror, and the Muslim Experience Since 9-11. It is our tradition to ask our guests to tell us about themselves and their intellectual journey. Who are you? What do you do? What got you interested in the academic path that you've chosen? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Shahnaz, for inviting me to be on this podcast. It's really exciting. You know, I've shared my book in a lot of different forums and spoken about it quite extensively. And I'm really excited to be here with you today as as a Muslim scholar and academic who really knows these issues through and through. So I guess I would start by saying, you know, my family is Egyptian, Arab and American. And at different points in my life, those identities have been resonant in different ways. And Post 
um, as a, you know, a marker that a lot of people use, particularly for Muslim communities. Um, not that that's the first marker of you know Muslims being discriminated or targeted. Obviously, we know that goes back to enslaved Black Muslims. Um, but for me, as someone who was growing up and who was 18 at the time of 9/11, I remember you know walking through the student union at University of Wisconsin Madison and and seeing everyone huddled by the TVs and um, learning that there had been an attack on the United States. And as I walked through the union, you know, the, the thing that I talk about in my book is just that, you know, for some reason, I started to feel like if this was an act of violence perpetrated by Muslims, um, that Muslims would somehow be held collectively responsible. Of course, that's exactly what did happen. But what was interesting, I think, to and what is interesting to reflect back on is the fact that, you know, I hadn't had necessarily a direct experience with collective responsibility on that large of a scale at that point in my life. But somehow instinctively, I knew that that would be the case. And I think that that is a function of what it means to grow up as other in this country. And that has been really um, entirely influential in my experience and in my life as a Muslim, as an Arab, and even as an American, being that I have, I hold two other identities. So this has been very central in my life in terms of how I, you know, identify, how I carry myself in the world, um, the issues that I've chosen to work on. And, you know, one thing I'll say, that, which is, I, I guess, slightly tangential is, you know, in a lot of these spaces in which I operate, we often talk about collective liberation. And one of the things that I've realized makes that idea so difficult to comprehend is that so much of my identity and so much of my life experience and the experiences of other Muslims as well has been bound up in this idea of always feeling you're as though you're at odds with the community, the culture, the society, the government um, that you live in and that you live with. And so part of this idea of collective liberation is, you know, what, is, what would that actually mean? And how would that fundamentally change how we are as, you know, for me as a Muslim, as an Arab, how would that fundamentally change who I am in this world? And so these are some of the really formative and experiences that I've had, and also just the ways in which my identity has really shaped the work I've done. And, you know, in particular, I chose to do my PhD on Muslim American responses to the war on terror. And this particular choice stemmed from an actually an internship that I did between the two, the, the second and first year of my master's program, which was in counseling. And I did an internship in Washington, DC at Amnesty International in what was then called the Denounce Torture Initiative. And it was through that initiative that I learned about Guantanamo Bay Prison in detail and observed as most people had, not that it was explicitly mentioned, but that the prison was created post 9-11 and was used to house an exclusive population of Muslim men. And that was a formidable political experience for me. It really shaped my career trajectory and is one of the things I account for in terms of why I'm where I am today. Because that was, to me, an indication of how far the U.S. government would go to criminalize Muslim communities. And Guantanamo is the epitome of institutionalized Islamophobia. And so having that recognition in that moment and then applying to do my Ph.D., 
and really centering that experience is what has led me down this path. And, you know, for, for those of us who are working in this field and, and generally in understanding the ways in which marginalized communities really suffer at the hands of the US government and um, members of society in this country, um, you know, there is no end to the research that needs to be done. There is no end to the work that needs to be done to address the marginalization, the stigmatization, the demonization, and all the other harmful impacts of you know, living in a country such as the United States. So that um, is, has, was sort of the foundation of where I am today and, and why I chose to write this book. Now for the book in particular, I was approached by the publisher um, specifically because they wanted a book and actually they approached a friend of mine and she didn't, um, she doesn't do this kind of writing. So they approached me and she um, referred them to me and they wanted a book that would speak to the impact of 20 years of the war on terror. Um, and, and, you know, to me, this was sort of a perfect culmination of all the work that I had done and an opportunity to really, you know, think about and reflect on and do research on, you know, how do we think about the totality of the impact of two decades of national security policies rooted in Islamophobia? And what has it meant? And what are the lessons we need to learn, right? What are the things we need to know about this country in terms of, is it redeemable at all? Is it irredeemable? Where do we go from here? And how do we change the course of the war on terror to begin to extract it and denormalize it from the ways we think about national security and the ways in which it's deeply impacted so many communities, most prominently the Muslim community. Oh, thank you so much for that. There's a lot of wonderful scholarship, including books on Islamophobia, on 9-11, on the war on terror and related topics. How do you see your book both contributing to that discourse and also filling existing gaps and needs? I would love for this book to be an assigned rating in many, many college courses, not just Islam related. And I think that it would help our audiences to know how this book could be useful to them. So, I, I, and as you know, I've done this, I've, I've assigned several chapters of, of this book in my, in my Islamophobia class in particular, uh, but I can see it also being relevant to so many other courses. Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. So, and, you know, it's a very, um, in many ways, a very academic question, right? Because when you're doing research and when you're in your PhD program in particular, the goal is to um, create a new body of knowledge. And so it often is a very painstaking process to determine, you know, what has already been said about this topic and what is my contribution? So there are a lot of amazing critical books in the field of Islamophobia, in the field of just generally the targeting of Muslims, whether you refer to it, this phenomenon as Islamophobia or otherwise. Um, one thing that I wanted to really impart in my book is this deep connection between narrative and policy. And I think what makes my book unique in that sense is that I have, I, I laid it out in three parts. The first is the narrative in terms of the official narrative that has been used by uh, the Bush administration and subsequent administrations in the facilitation of the war on terror. And then also the connection of how these narratives have directly led to the legitimization and justification of state violence and general brutality. Also, when we look at state violence, right, it's not just about legitimizing and um, 
rationalizing state violence. State violence also perpetuates certain narratives in order for it to operate effectively and efficiently, right? You cannot sanction torture if you're not simultaneously using narratives that dehumanize the, the groups that you're torturing. So they exist in a very cyclical manner. And so what I sort of observed in the larger landscape of books addressing Islamophobia is that oftentimes, for one, if you're looking at a lot of books written by those who aren't Muslim, an Islamophobia analysis is not mainstreamed into the ways that national security post 9-11 is understood. And secondly, when we talk about the different parts of my book, whether it's the narrative, the policy, or the impact on Muslims, it is often the case that these three parts are separate. They compose different, like it could be a book that's split into three different books. And I really wanted to put them in the same book so that the war on terror could be understood as holistically as possible. So how do the narratives lead to the policies? How do the policies lead to the perpetuation of certain narratives? Also, how has how have both impacted Muslims and how have Muslims internalized the oppression that they've experienced at the hands of society and the state? So again, I think um, my, my book is unique in that sense. Another way I think that um, my book is unique and, and something that I also wanted to impart is, you know, how, what is the war on terror? We use this term so much and it's such a nebulous term, right? Um, in fact, the term was used by Bush for the first time on September 20th, 2001, in a speech to joint to the joint session of Congress. And this was nine days after 9-11. And when he said the term war on terror, it wasn't, of course, clear what that meant because you cannot have an actual war on terror. What I wanted to do in this book is think about what are the boundaries of the war on terror? When we talk about dismantling and abolishing the war on terror, what does that actually mean? if we don't understand its extent, the extent to which this war has been fought. So in that vein, what I did was to create a taxonomy of the war on terror, which is comprised of five dimensions, which includes militarism and warfare, draconian immigration policies, surveillance, federal terrorism prosecutions, and detention and torture. And this doesn't mean that the whole war on terror is encompassed by those five dimensions, but it is to create and have a starting point from which we can understand the totality again of the brutality of the war on terror. And also within that to understand how deeply entrenched Islamophobia has been throughout the entirety of the war on terror. And finally, when we think about the war on terror, it has often been constructed as something that's being fought abroad when in reality, the war on terror has been fought on the, the domestic front since its beginnings. And the reason why that's important is because they're interconnected. What happens abroad impacts what happens domestically and vice versa. And to create and construct that artificial distinction is not only to disguise the uh, scale of this apparatus, but to also eliminate the possibility of solidarity because people simply do not know that their struggles are connected in this way because they are both being victimized by the US's state violence.
Yes, thank you so much for that. To me, also, one of the most important things that this book does is to describe the construction of the narrative of the, on the war on terror. I think that uh, a lot of the books that I've read, a lot of materials that I've read on Islamophobia, they don't do as excellent a job articulating this concept and this, this, this focus on the narrative, right, of how rhetoric figures in the construction of the narrative of 9-11 and the quote-unquote war on terror. And I've, I've, I've always wanted this narrative to be articulated in the ways that you do it and you do, you do it so well. So I, I would love for our audience to, to hear sort of a summary of this narrative. No, and I, I appreciate that question because to understand the war on terror and to understand how we got to where we are today is to understand the narratives that were used from the very beginning to construct what has become a nebulous, never-ending war. When you look at Bush's speech, and this is a speech that I come back to frequently, in the very beginning, again on September 20th, 2001, he really talked about um, you know, what, this, what the attacks meant. And he asked questions such as, why do they hate us? Actually, he said, Americans are asking tonight, why do they hate us? Now, were Americans actually asking that? Is that the frame that they would have used to describe the pain of the attacks? We don't know. But the point wasn't to actually ascertain what Americans were asking. The point was to tell Americans what to ask and not just what to ask, but how to answer that question. And the question was provided an answer by Bush. They hate us for our democracy and our freedom. And why does that matter? It matters because if that's why they hate us, in other words, it's an irrational reason and irrational people cannot be reasoned with, there are no diplomatic measures that can be taken, then our only solution, the only interventions that are useful and that can solve this problem are those based in brute force or based on brute force. So there is a very calculated narrative in terms of how do we get people to sanction and condone and be on the same page with the violence that the United States was preparing to leverage. One of the other quotes I always come back to from that same speech is when Bush said, whether we bring justice to our enemies or our enemies to justice, justice will be done. And to me, that's important. That's a very important quote because what he's saying is whatever the United States does under the guise of fighting the war on terror is justice. And that should be unquestioned. Of course, what Bush never answered is justice for who? There's also the question of memory, right? And this is a very persistent narrative in the course of the war on terror. Who do we remember? whose lives have value, and what are the stories that are being told? Whenever there's a question of historical memory, we have to remember that historical memory is also constructed. When the story of 9-11 happened, Bush would often refer to this idea of history, that history is essentially waiting to see how we will respond. But he didn't talk about the history that perhaps led us to that point, the history of US violence that far predates the 9-11 attacks. And again, when that is your frame of reference, the point is not just to tell a story 
and let it be. The point is to tell a story and to weaponize it in service of violence. And that's consistently what the narrative that has been used throughout the course of the war on terror has been designed to do. There are a lot of other narratives, um, specifically around American exceptionalism, that essentially, right, the United States is this beacon of human rights and freedom. So not only is that the reason why the United States was attacked, that's also the reason why the United States has to go around the world to other countries to impart this amazing model of democracy and human rights. So it serves these dual purposes of responding to the violence in the way that the U.S. responded, and also promoting its imperialistic goals and aims for other countries under the guise of protecting our national security. Of course, we can't ignore the role of the clash of civilizations narrative that also predates 9-11, but was increasingly weaponized by the Bush administration in terms of these people we're trying to civilize who we don't understand. And if we don't understand people, then there cannot be justice for them. And there was this a lot of language, right? This stems from Samuel Huntington. He was the individual who really developed this theory of the clash of civilizations. And he said, quote, in his book, the fundamental problem for the West is not Islamic fundamentalism. It is Islam, a different civilization whose people are convinced of the superiority of their culture and are obsessed with the inferiority of their power. So these are the kind of ideas that have been embedded into the war on terror's narrative, that there's something fundamentally wrong with Islam and Muslims. And if that's the case, then the only solution is rehabilitation. But there are more specific problems that the narrative was designed to establish about Muslims. One of those, is the idea of Muslim rage. And that is a subsequent, right? That is a subsequent narrative that follows very clearly from the clash of civilizations. And in my book, I talk a lot about Muslim rage, specifically the idea that Muslims essentially don't have anything to be angry about, whether we're looking at the past or the present. They're simply angry and rageful because they're inherently that way. And if they're inherently that way, then again, we cannot reason with them. And that serves the United States' purpose in another way, which is to say that Muslims are not victims. They're not angry because they're victims, or if they are angry, it's irrational anger. The U.S. is the only victim. The U.S. is the only country and the only body that has the authority to claim victimhood and victimhood that actually matters. And then I think, you know, the, the last thing I'll say is just generally, when we talk about narratives on terrorism specifically, oh, I just said generally and specifically. <laughs> when we talk about narratives on terrorism, there has been an extremely intentional construction of terrorism as a Muslim problem and an intentional deviation away from the idea that in reality, if you look at state violence versus non-state actor violence, there's often nothing objectively different about it. The difference is that the state has the power, which therefore means it has the power to construct what is defined as terrorism. 
and in the course of the war on terror that has been constructed as a solely Muslim phenomenon. And that is also why when we look at domestic terrorism in its current context and the way it has been emerging, even when white extremists perpetrate acts of violence that are referred to as terrorism, it never really sticks. And that is specifically because of this narrative that has been allowed to thrive where Muslims are constructed again as the sole terrorists. I could go on and on, but. Um. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's so helpful. That is, that's brilliantly articulated. Thank you so much for that. Can I add something quick? Absolutely. Please go ahead. So one of the, you know, there are very different ways that the narrative shows up and sometimes in more subtle ways. Um, so, you know, I, as you know, I do a lot of work on the closure of Guantanamo Bay and ending torture. And the reasons why Guantanamo is often cited as, okay, let me backtrack. The reasons why most people say the prison should be closed are because it's expensive. It contradicts who the United States is as a country and it serves as a recruitment tool for terrorists. Of course, there's something noticeably absent in those reasons, namely that it has largely destroyed the lives of hundreds of men who can no longer resume a life of normalcy. And that specific omission is meant to preserve the dehumanization of these men. Not just that, but when they are cleared for release from the prison, they are transferred, right? They're not vindicated. There's no acknowledgement of wrongdoing, any accountability whatsoever. And in the absence of that, even without specifically reiterating that these men are terrorists in their home country or the third party country in which they end up in, they effectively resume that designation. And so there are ways that the narrative is used explicitly to further demonize and target Muslims. And then there are ways that the narrative operates more subtly but without any sort of vindication. And because of that, it allows the narratives that already exist, even if they're in the background, to be applicable because there's nothing that's said to the contrary. Thank you. Thank you for adding that. What we'll, oh, we'll come back to this idea of uh, torture because, oh my God, that was, it was heartbreaking and it was devastating. And, and I had a sort of difficult time reading that that chapter, but we'll come back to that in, in just a bit. Or I'd like to ask a question about um, U.S. presidents and their involvement in or their contributions to the Islamophobic rhetoric. So what are some ways that U.S. presidents since 9-11 have contributed to the Islamoph- Islamophobic rhetoric and atmosphere in the U.S.? Well, you know, it's interesting because we often associate the most um, explicit rhetoric with Trump. And while that's the case empirically. Exactly. Right. (laughs) It doesn't mean that um, it's not a statement on the extent to which the violence was pursued under the Obama and Bush administrations. One of the books I talk about um, in my book, I don't know the exact title, but it's Presidential discourse on terrorism or something along these lines, and and perhaps we can put the link. Um, But it really talks about how Bush was sort of, his administration was the primary architect for this story of the war on terror and, and the language of terrorism. And that Obama didn't have to emphasize the narrative nearly as much 
because Bush had sort of done the policy selling for him. If you don't know that, you might have interpreted Obama's language and rhetoric towards Muslims as more benign and even positive at times. And on the face of it, sure, that's true. However, when it comes to what was being done behind closed doors and even open doors, we know that there was no subsiding in the violence that was being perpetrated by the Obama administration as compared to the Bush administration. When Obama became president, he sort of largely abandoned the use of the term war on terror. And of course, there are disagreements as to whether or not um, those of us pushing back against it should even be using this term. But suffice it to say, in the absence of the use of the term, to me, the only thing that did was to largely distract people from the systemic violence that was occurring still under the guise of national security. And Obama really benefited from the fact that he was seen in a particular way. At the same time, when you look at Bush, he visited a mosque, right? Earlier in his days, in his administration, he would often go out of his way to make a distinction between the sort of bad terrorist Muslims and the good Muslims. But in reality, what that actually did is to, is to, was to subdue people and to deflect attention away from, regardless of the rhetoric, Muslims were being targeted and not just those quote, terrorist Muslims, the average Muslim. And that was by design, regardless of whatever narratives and rhetoric the Bush administration wanted to use. When it came to Trump, right? Of course, his narratives and the rhetoric he used was overtly explicit. And in some ways it made people more attuned to, of course, the violence that was being perpetrated and legitimized vis-a-vis Islamophobic narratives, but at the same time, right, Trump wasn't necessarily extraordinary in terms of the violence that he was perpetuating and inflicting on Muslim communities. Because not only do you have to think about what was sanctioned under a particular administration, you have to think about the legacy on which their violence was built. So when we look at drone strikes, for example, Obama exponentially increased the use of drone strikes over Bush, and Trump exponentially increased the use of drone strikes over Obama. So they're building off of each other. And in the grand scheme of things, every single presidential administration post 9-11 has utilized extremely Islamophobic narratives. When you, even when you attempt to make a distinction between those terrorist Muslims and the average Muslim, If the policies are saying something other than that, then it doesn't really matter. And when it's done in that way, it basically defeats the message that you are trying to give or trying to say. So I think it's it's a, a very important question because state violence has been very bipartisan in the war on terror, but it is often the narrative that has sort of confused people and deflected away from this very reality. And we have to look at the source as being Bush, but we also have to then look at Obama and Trump, not just in what was overtly visible, but also the nuances in the language they chose to use or not. And I think that 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 continues to be 
really, really um, important and powerful. Could you give us some examples of uh, U.S. policies, both domestic and international or either, that legitimate the existence and the presence of Islamophobia such that while racism and discrimination are officially illegal, certain acts against Muslims the, or the targeting of Muslims become acceptable because of these policies? Sure. So I think that, you know, the fundamental problem here is that generally speaking, right, policies are either neutral on their face or, um, actually, let me backtrack. So when we look at the policy sphere and when we look at how Islamophobia has been deeply entrenched into the laws and policies post 9-11, we can see, you know, how demonized Muslims have been throughout, throughout it. Um, when you look at policies, right, they don't necessarily, actually, they never say this policy is meant to target Muslims or this policy should be disproportionately applied to Muslims because Muslims deserve more of the policy burdens. It's never like that. However, what does happen is that even policies that are neutral on their face in implementation, it becomes clear who is actually the intended target. And when that becomes clear, then it is also clear what the particular constructions of those targeted are meant to be reinforced by the policy. And so it's a very sometimes subtle process, not always, but the United States has gotten away with it, of course, because of the Islamophobia in this country. But for example, when the National Special Entry Exit Registration System was implemented, they didn't say we're going to be targeting men from Muslim majority countries, right? They just named the countries that happened to be Muslim majority. And of course, any reasonable person would still deduce that that was Islamophobic. But the rationale was that the people that attacked us or the people that are terrorists are more likely to come from these countries. And we have evidence to prove that. And that's a, another important point because when the government suggests that there's evidence to prove something, it no longer matters if it's racist, if it's xenophobic, if it's Islamophobic. And it also means that they're not willing to do any of the work to understand the larger context of the problem that it is okay to simply view the problem narrowly in a vacuum so that whoever group the government wants to target can be easily targeted with the acquiescence of the public. So there are a number of policies that we could talk about, right? Whether it was the National Special Entry um, Exit Registration System, whether it's the no-fly list, the terror watch list, and those have been pretty explicit in terms of who was targeted. And then when you look at places like Guantanamo Bay, where there were essentially legal decisions that were made to cast out these people from the protections of US law, although they provided, well, very, very horrible rationales, legal rationales, but somehow the provision of legal rationales was sufficient to say that this isn't Islamophobic, especially with the narrative that this is a new kind of war that we're fighting. This is a break from the past. We have to do something differently. 
And it just so happens that the targets are Muslim. Federal terrorism prosecutions. One of the things I keep thinking back to is from the January 6th insurrection, the man who was wearing the hat with horns and face makeup, who's, you know, whose picture was sort of blasted all over TV. When he went to prison, he requested organic food and he was granted that request. Whereas when Muslims are being prosecuted, right, in federal terrorism prosecutions, they can't even convince the courts that, for example, an act of violence that they theoretically committed to was provoked by an informant because the entrapment defense for Muslims has never succeeded. And if you look at what's at stake, right, there is so much at stake when it comes to how Muslims are treated in this country and by the legal system. And I just keep thinking about what happened on January 6th, also because the FBI kept saying, please help us find these suspects. Well, the FBI helped find Muslims before they even did anything, right? We know the FBI's responsibility and role in demonizing and perpetuating the criminalization of Muslims. And that has been a direct product of Islamophobia and the war on terror and the fact that they have been given leeway to do whatever it is that they wanted to do. And so one, uh, one last point I'll make is that, you know, when we're looking at the policy sphere post 9-11, it's not just about what's written on, on the books, right? It's also about the leeway that different agencies had to inflict violence on Muslim communities. And that wasn't always something that was written on paper. And if it was preserved. And so we can look at a broad range of policies targeting Muslims, again, whether it's the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, right? Whether it's the Muslim ban, whether it's countering violent extremism, whether it's a federal terrorism prosecution involving informants, or whether it is detention and torture that has almost exclusively been used against Muslims post 9-11 under the guise of national security. Thank you. That segues great on your part, your, 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 your point about informants anyway, into the next question. Which, so as you know, I've assigned some of the chapters of this book in my Islamophobia class. And some of my students found they were absolutely stunned by the ways that the US through the FBI, for example, uses informants, sometimes Muslims, to entrap Muslims, although sometimes with very, very ironic twists. And, and this seems to be the norm rather than an, an exception, given the so many examples that you describe in the book. How is, and I know this is going to sound like a naive question, but I have to ask, how is the FBI able to get away with this? And, and also, why is this not more widely known? Well, that's a really great question. And, you know, I think we can ask the question of why are any government institutions allowed to get away with the violence that they perpetrate? And the reason is, is because there's no accountability whatsoever, right? Whether it's FBI, whether it's CIA, whether it's the DHS, there simply isn't accountability. And generally speaking, when accountability has been tried, nothing actually comes of it. <clears throat> I definitely understand, right, how the use of informants and the FBI's role in the war on terror warrants a lot of questions, right? How is it that 
the use of informants basically exploded post 9-11. In 2011, there was more than 15,000 informants, which is three times what it was 25 years prior. And we can look at this in many different ways. One of which is if these terrorist actions were so obvious, right? And Muslims were so obviously violent and inherently terroristic, why is it that the FBI needed so many informants to prove as much? And one of the reasons why this strategy has succeeded is back to my other response, the idea that the entrapment defense has never succeeded for Muslims. You know, I don't know what the rate is in terms of informants being used on, for example, white communities. But as I wrote, co-wrote in an op-ed yesterday regarding two of the white defendants in the trial about uh, the, the, the case where four individuals wanted to kidnap Governor Whitner, Whitmer, they were acquitted on the basis of the entrapment defense. And the difference there is that Muslims are constructed as being inherently violent and terroristic, such that the argument is, it is not because of the informant that they agreed to or were going to commit this act of violence. It is because it is their it is because of their inherent tendency towards violence. So, in other words, had the informant been absent, those involved in these cases would have committed the acts of violence nevertheless. It simply was just about a matter of time. And that's why the FBI has gotten away with so much because what we're dealing with are inherent characteristics with which you can't intervene in stopping someone from acting on what's inherent to them. They were going to do this anyway. And so the FBI is just protecting us from these evil, scary people that want nothing but violence. Additionally, when we just talk about, you know, why is this not more widely known? I imagine that it might be more widely known than we think it is. But because of the construction of Muslims and subsequently the necessity for the strategy, there hasn't been a huge uproar. And of course, this lack of uproar pertains to many things involving the war on terror, but that is one of them, right? That the U.S. has normalized this approach to combating terrorism. And interestingly enough, when there have been cases such as the Boston bombers, which they specifically knew and had evidence of the fact that maybe they had something planned, they did nothing. So on the one hand, they do nothing when they have the evidence. And on the other hand, they're going out of their way to provoke individuals, right? To agreeing to commit acts of violence. And the net impact of that is to simply criminalize more Muslims altogether. There's an excellent book that was written by Wadi Saeed. And he talks about what happened post 9-11, what changed is a sort of preemptive approach to law. And this preemptive approach really gave and gives the U.S. government a lot of leeway. Because if you're catching people before they commit a crime, how much 
you actually have to prove. And so that has sort of undergirded a lot of the ways the FBI has approached federal terrorism prosecutions post 9-11. And I think, you know, I'll say two more things. Um, One is that, you know, in this society, institutions such as the FBI are still extremely valorized. You know, I think that has shifted over the years, but there still is this emphasis on the necessity of these national security organizations or institutions rather, and that they're doing the right thing and that they're simply protecting us from people who want nothing but our harm. And so a lot of the violence against Muslims in this context has been sanctioned because of this, whether it's expansion of material support for terrorism laws, whether it's the fact that courts are excessively sympathetic to national security as a sort of overwhelming, important justification for government overreach. There are a lot of impacts on the ways in which government institutions such as the FBI have been constructed as being for the common good and as a benevolent force that simply exists to protect the American people. Thank you. Um, now our discussion on torture. Oh my God, it was it was very it was very difficult to read. It was impossible to get through. And and all I could think was, and then again, this is probably again very very naive to think, but all I could think was how so illegal this all should be. And oh my God, how American journalists would be writing these American, uh, writing about these American torture techniques and torture sites if it was non-Americans like the Middle Easterners committing this torture, the same exact torture. And, and, and while they're, you know, while they're treated by some U.S. presidents as exceptional cases, you talk about all of the loopholes, the narratives and the legal strategies that allow the U.S. to not only commit this torture, but to commit it specifically and exclusively against Muslims so that something like you know, the detention interrogation program applies only to Muslims. Can you tell us, can you tell our listeners, please, a little bit about these, what these strategies for legalizing these uh, these unacceptable crimes are, what these loopholes are, how this is still le- and, and and ends up being legal, basically. Yeah, this is this is a big question, and it's you know it's it really a, quite a disturbing development in the course of the war on terror. So for one thing, you know, the U.S. has engaged in torture for as long as this country has existed. Um, in other contexts, it was supporting other regimes and other governments that were engaging in torture. And in this case, of course, it was about sanctioning our own government officials and our own government agencies to inflict torture. When I was trying to think of, you know, how to answer this question in in sort of a succinct way, one of the things that occurred to me is that whatever it is that happened, I think the way we can think about it is that what was sanctioned was not just narrowly specific torture tactics. But what was sanctioned and what was legalized was actually lawlessness. This was about legalizing lawlessness. And lawlessness is doing whatever you want to do. And in this case, in service of some theoretical national security goal of protecting the American people. Torture in the context of 9-11 was designed to exist outside of the law. From creating this um, designation of enemy combatants such that Geneva protections wouldn't apply 
to the men detained at Guantanamo. Two, the idea that John Yu expressed in the torture memos that in order for something to qualify as torture, it had to rise to the level of organ failure or death, making it seem as though torture was a very abstract and hard term to define is what sort of pushed these concepts outside of the law. And the interesting part about all of this, right, is that they didn't just decide to, co- to be completely lawless about it in the sense that they went through great lengths to actually legalize and provide legal rationales for torture. But again, essentially what it was doing, what many of them did, was to say that it's okay if you use this tactic. It's not really torture. We'll call it enhanced interrogation techniques. We'll give it another name, right? There was a back and forth in terms of what tactics could be legalized and what couldn't. And at the end of the day, if you're discussing what sort of brutality can be condoned, what it comes down to is that there isn't going to be accountability. Because where do you draw the line when the line has been so far removed to the right, the right, the wrong, actually the wrong side of what torture actually means? So fundamentally, you know, a lot of this was about what was actually sanctioned, but a lot of it was about the idea that there wasn't going to be accountability. And we're just going to write something down on paper to present the facade that there is, that we do have some boundaries to these operations, but there wasn't. And to sanction the torture, you know, there was a lot of narratives in the beginning that were used, right? Whether it was, we're taking the gloves off, as Dick Cheney said, whether it was describing Guantanamo prisoners as the worst of the worst, right? So many different constructions that have supported the use of torture, stemming largely from, however, one, again, the legalizing of lawlessness, two, essentially outcasting the men in Guantanamo and the men in general who were targeted and victimized by the CIA as enemy combatants and therefore not entitled to Geneva protections. And at the end of the day, there has only been, I think, I believe one case in which the government actually admitted to torturing one of the men. And this is after significant documentation of the torture that has happened. And the last thing I'll say is that, you know, I remember when the Senate Select Committee report on CIA torture came out, there was a Washington Post slash ABC um, opinion poll that asked a number of questions about it, including, in your opinion, were these tactics something, this is not verbatim, but generally, what were these tactics justified or unjustified? 49% said they were justified. And if you have read some of the egregious acts of violence that have been used by the CIA and at places like Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, if you believe that they were justified, then that basically means that you have accepted the deep and total dehumanization of Muslims. And that is the only way this torture could have been allowed to happen in the way it was. Not just because it was legalized, but because who it was u- legalized for use against. Why? So are there are, are any of these torture sites located on U.S. soil or within U.S. borders? 
Well, so it, you know, it depends, right? Because we typically think um, that torture is not happening in domestic US prisons, right? But it all depends on what is actually torture. Solitary confinement is torture. And we know that there are prisons domestically that confine people in these conditions. So, you know, we can look at this in a, in a number of, of sort of different ways. Um, again, there is torture that happens domestically, but there's a lack of visibility. There's a lack of accountability. Um, and when it comes to using torture in other countries or other places, I mean, essentially Guantanamo was selected because of its, you know, there's a book called The Place Outside of the Law, which is about Guantanamo because it was this place outside of the law. And it's not just outside of the law, it was out of sight, out of mind. So when you move, when you physically remove people from a place where they are visible, you can not only dehumanize them, but you can invisibilize them. And that is the invisibility that the government sought for the men at Guantanamo, for those who were tortured by the CIA. In addition, we know that the CIA had numerous black sites, right? The CIA literally tortured these men themselves. And they also rendered people to other countries. And that's another important um, fact, because if you're rendering people to other countries where you know they're going to be tortured and where, in fact, that is your reason for torturing them, you can still, though, at the same time, say that you are not the torturer because you are not physically and literally doing the torture, even if it's at the behest of the U.S. government. So while there is torture that happens domestically, when we think about the total and unaccountable and even invisible torture that has happened post 9-11, it has been much easier, of course, for the government to again put these people out of sight and out of mind. And Guantanamo, right, was selected again because it was outside of the law. And that might made it much easier, sorry, much more difficult in terms of access, right? It took a long time for even lawyers to be able to access the prison to provide representation for the men that were detained. And that's a reason why the United States wanted to host or house the men in this offshore prison. Um, let's switch gears totally and talk about internalized Islamophobia. I, this is something that I struggle with sometimes, um, thinking about and discussing Islamophobia, uh, internalized forms of Islamophobia, which I know it can be so, it is so problematic in, in so many kinds of ways. And I sometimes wonder if we can think of it and still critique it and call out the ways that, you know, in, the ways in which it harms Muslims. But I wonder if we can think of it as a survival technique. Uh, would that sound legitimate to you? I, I know, for example, that yes, this Eid, no, this Iftar, no, the Eid celebration at the White House, but it is considered, it, it, it wasn't acceptable to a lot of uh, Muslims, um, totally acceptable to other Muslims, many Muslims partook in it. I, I guess, what is this internalized Islamophobia? What are some examples of it? And then how are there ways to think of it as sort of, uh, like you said, a survival technique. It's uh, working with the, you know, empire, with the system as a survival tool. Yeah, I, I think that's a good question um, because there is a distinction in terms of what I would consider pretty overtly internalized Islamophobia, which is sort of this uncritical acceptance of dominant narratives about Islam and Muslims 
and engaging in collective responsibility, for example, where you're only condemning acts of violence by Muslims and not those who aren't Muslim, and also not condemning state violence against Muslims as well. I think also internalized Islamophobia refers to and is about normalizing our existence. And so to your question about the White House iftar, you know, I think there's the action and then there's the how. So it's not just that Muslims went to the White House or the White House any party, right? How did they engage? When Biden talked about, you know, remedies or the idea that Muslim Americans, there's still a lot of work to be done. If you had read my book, or if you had read a similar book on Islamophobia, and if you have followed what Biden helped promote under the Obama administration, as well as what he's doing now in service of the war on terror, what would your response have been? And I'm not ignoring power dynamics here, but if you're in a situation where you're at this aid party and you're being subjected to a narrative that is categorically false, that we need to sort of still protect Muslims while at the same time, you know, the chief of empire is not doing any of that, then to me, that is an example of internalized Islamophobia. Survival, I mean, this is not to say we can't attribute anything to survival, but my question is, does that actually help us survive to accept a false narrative? Literally, his narrative is contrary to what has happened on the ground, contrary to the fact that his administration has already engaged in serious and massive violence against Muslims, whether domestically or abroad. So what does that have to do with survival if it is just going to enjoy a nice fancy dinner where you're going to hear this double speak? I think of survival in different ways, such as, for example, if a Muslim woman chooses to take off her hijab because she's afraid of her safety and security. Some people might say that's internalized Islamophobia because they think that she should just, you know, basically um, stand up to the challenges she's having. I've heard that before. Yeah. But my view, okay. right? Like you should always stand up for what you believe, even if it comes at your personal harm. And I'm not, I don't make judgments on, on, in terms of what people view as necessary to their survival, right? I think that there are obviously valid reasons why Muslims or any marginalized groups, they would behave in the way that they do as a matter of survival. To me, the question is, if you're at the White House Iftar or White House Aid Party, what are you doing simultaneous to that? Are you directly challenging the Biden administration's violence against Muslims? If you're there, what are you saying while you're there? Are you accepting those narratives? Is it okay for him to say things that are categorically false about Muslims? So to me, there's a lot of questions that need to be asked. And I think people get stuck on sort of the action itself as opposed to, and in addition to, right? What is the conduct within that act? How are you pushing back against the Islamophobia of the Biden administration? And there are a lot of different examples. You know, one of the examples I talk about in the book is of this um, masjid where they received hundreds of thousands of dollars for CVE money. And 
one of the projects they used it on was a normalization project to develop these posters that said things like, terrorism has no religion, but in the poster, the only two people that are pictured are very obviously and visibly Muslim. What does that say? And we often talk about taking control of the narrative. I don't think Muslims, and in this context, in the context of internalized Islamophobia, have any control over the narrative whatsoever because we can't actually ascertain and discern what are the harmful narratives that we're espousing and what are the ways that we're subjecting ourselves and not pushing back against these harmful narratives. I think about the long-term goal and the short-term goal when it comes to internalized Islamophobia as well and what it, what it means to fight institutionalized Islamophobia. What are you doing is what you're doing as a short-term goal actually going to help us move towards liberation as a long-term goal? And to me, that's really important as a metric in terms of what are we doing under the guise of fighting against Islamophobia, but potentially reinforcing certain ideas and beliefs about Muslims that then allow certain people to engage with the very systems that are harming us. Thank you. That's very helpful. Writing this book cannot have been easy, I imagine. And you know, especially with some of the chapters, specific details of torture, of real lived experiences with Islamophobia that get violent and gory and disturbing. How did you cope with writing this book and with these feelings? I, I wonder if you had any kind of support in you know, producing this book. Oh, that's a good question. So I remember, you know, there was a very intense period of writing and I felt extremely depressed because of the content. And I kept being told, you know, take a break, take a break, take a break. So one weekend after doing an also depressing interview on um, uh, with a Palestinian psychologist working with Palestinians living under occupation, I decided, you know, I should take a day off. And I mentioned that because when I took that day off, all the emotions came flooding and I was simply like, I was just a wreck. I couldn't handle it. It was ex- like I was immobilized from all of the, the depression I was feeling about, you know, the work that I had done, the research that I had been doing for the book, and just generally listening to the violence of many different um, countries, right? Whether we're talking about Israel or the United States. And it was very hard to cope with cope with the feelings that I was having. It was very hard. And so, you know, to me, it just seemed like in order to get through the book in in a, you know, as quick way, as quick, quickly as possible, because that's what was being demanded of me by the publisher. The only thing I could do was just basically write and work on autopilot because I, I learned that when I stopped, that it slowed me down. And of course, you know, we always want to prioritize you know, really listening to ourselves, listening to our bodies and taking space and breaks when we want to. But then there's the very unfortunate reality of deadlines. And every time I stopped, I could not overcome these like subsuming feelings of how deeply violent this country has been towards Muslims. And, you know, in addition to reading the stories, you know, I interact quite frequently, for example, with survivors of Guantanamo Bay. And I used to work with um, survivors of torture when I was in my PhD program and just reading about their stories and then talking to them as individuals and learning about, you know, the fact that the, the punishment doesn't end even if the physical torture ends. It continues because it lives with these people 
It lives with them long after the torture has ended. Being in frequent communication with them, on the one hand, you know, I often think about, you know, if I'm feeling depressed, how should they feel? And this is not to, you know, say that people don't have legitimate problems and, and issues that they deal with in their personal lives, but then it also becomes hard to sort of manage and balance those two things. Um, and so it was extremely hard for me to write this book. I mean, I have a master's in counseling and, you know, I would, I would sometimes try to tell myself, you know, what would I tell someone who was writing a book on such a violent topic? Like, how could you, you know, what, what, what would words of comfort be? And on the one hand, you want to think, okay, I'm doing a service to, to my community in producing these books, this book and telling the world the stories of Muslims that I believe are so important. And on the other hand, you know, how do you manage the burnout that I think inevitably comes with it? And for me, it has been very hard. And it is hard, as you know, because of the fact that I am Muslim, I do identify as Muslim. And there is no separation of my identity from this topic. You know, you can think about, you know, I think what has been successful in the course of the war on terror is convincing people, for example, that there's only certain kinds of Muslims that will end up at Guantanamo. And I've never taken that view because I think a lot of kinds of Muslims can end up in Guantanamo. A lot of kinds of Muslims can end up being targeted and trapped. And when you realize the visceral reality of the violence, it becomes really impossible to inculcate yourself from thinking about, you know, how is my community, my family being impacted by this? And what would I do? You know, I know a lot of these, a lot of the men who've been freed from Guantanamo and who I've become friends with. And, you know, it's, it's really painful to me to hear their stories and to hear how they continue to struggle. And also just painful to think about, you know, what continues to happen to Muslims on a daily basis. And so part of it is, you know, I think I've, I've gone into great detail about this question, but part of it was hard writing the book. And then the other part is, that's hard is, you know, is this book going to make a difference? What can this book do to alleviate any of the suffering and hardship? And, you know, how can we leverage, you know, all the work that so many are doing in service of fighting Islamophobia and in really, you know, protecting and shielding those who choose to take on this work in service of the community? And, you know, how can we make sure that these works, these books, these articles, these op-eds, the organizing, et cetera, has an impact on how we think about and fight institutionalized Islamophobia. Thank you. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us? We're almost at a close. You know, I think one of the most important reasons I wrote this book was because of the fact that, you know, throughout my study of the war on terror, it's often been the case that Islamophobia has been excluded from our understanding of, of the war. And so to me, that was one of the most important things to impart. And I, you know, I've been in many different forums um, where I'm asked, what role has Islamophobia played in the war on terror? And to me, the fact that we are still asking this question two plus decades after the onset of the war on terror is an example of how far we have left to go in really underscoring the problem of Islamophobia and the war on terror. And so it is really my hope that through my book and, and through my scholarship that I can really impart that in order to deeply understand the war on terror and in particular how to dismantle and abolish it, that it is critical and imperative to understand how deeply entrenched Islamophobia has been rooted in it 
and to also simultaneously dismantle and abolish Islamophobia. Thank you for that. And then before we close, before we come to a close now, uh, we'd like to ask our authors what else they're working on currently that we can look forward to in the future. Now you can say, you can totally say, I'm just taking a break right now. You deserve a break. You deserve to exist in this universe without <laughs> doing any more research. Yeah, so I'm I'm currently working on um, a research project that I haven't gotten gotten much much headway on. But thinking about the exclusion of Guantanamo from mass incarceration spaces and how do we understand what has happened in particular around detention in the war on terror in terms of the larger sphere of U.S. carcerality and incorporating Guantanamo into our understanding of U.S. carcerality while also understanding how Guantanamo and places like CIA black sites have influenced the operation of prisons domestically. So that's kind of what I've been working on and, and just really thinking about, you know, how do we capture the totality of the U.S.'s carceral state, whether it happens domestically or abroad? Thank you. Uh, that's exciting. And I, I can't wait to uh, see what comes out of that and inshallah do another interview on new books with you in the future. So uh, thank you so much, Mahad. This was lovely. I am, again, I'm so grateful for your book and I look forward to your future work. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Shahnaz. So Absolutely. Alrighty. That was my conversation with Maha Hilal about her book, Innocent Until Proven Muslim. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you all next time. Salam.